As you're taking your seats, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Philemon. It's right after the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus. You can hit Philemon. If you go to Hebrews, you've gone a little bit too far, so back up a little bit. We are completing our uh, final message in the book of Philemon in our series, our summer series, Postcard, Prophets, and Epistles, diving into some of the shorter books of the Bible, um, books that you could say could be written, they're so small, on the back of a postcard. And uh, this morning, we're looking at this kind of final piece of the puzzle when it comes to relationships and it comes to forgiveness and reconciliation. We've looked at those two Um, ideas and themes throughout the book of Philemon. And this morning, I want to look at what it means to have a heart that's ready to restore, to bring full and complete restoration into um, the brokenness of relationships. I had a good friend in in high school, and we played on some sports teams together, had a lot of classes together, but early on in high school, he uh, and his father um, purchased an old car, I mean a really old car, a car that needed to be restored. I've always had a, a great deal of respect for people who can take old things and bring them back to um, a place of usefulness and a place of beauty. When my friend bought this car, um, he took a, an initial risk in, in buying this, what was a piece of junk. I mean, it was broken down. It didn't have an engine. It had bits and pieces of an engine. It looked kind of like a car. It was rusted. I mean, it had literally no paint left on it. But they took a risk, and they bought this car. You see, it was a risk because there was no guarantee that they were going to be able to fully restore it. It was going to require a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of work. It was going to require a lot of money. It was going to require a lot of learning and and skill development to be able to get this thing back into working order. It was a huge risk that they were willing to take. But you see, after a bit of work, they began to repair so much of what was broken. They began to replace some of those parts. They began to find them scouring junkyards and looking through different sources to be able to come up with all of the parts that were necessary to put this thing back together. As they began to repair what was broken, little by little, you could see it coming together. And he would come in and he'd show me pictures from time to time at the progress they were making. And I'm talking over the course of years, this thing eventually began to have a glimpse of its previous, its former glory. And eventually, by the time we finished high school, he and his father had managed to fully bring this thing back, not only to its former glory, but to a glory that actually surpassed what it once was. I mean, the beauty of this old car was fascinating. It was really something to behold. It was something really precious and something really sweet in the sense of accomplishment of taking something that was broken and bringing it to a place of complete restoration, I think is incredibly unique. And yet at the same time, while it's unique, it's something that is intended to be a reality for all of us when it comes to our relationships. Every one of us knows what it's like to be in a broken relationship. Every one of us has experienced a relationship that has gone sour, that has been significantly broken, and that desperately needs restoration. It's been said that we're never more like Christ than when we are forgiving or reconciling or restoring because this is the very heart of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ specializes in. He takes broken people and broken relationships and he brings them back to a place of full and complete restoration. It's the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's no wonder that we see Paul in this letter to this man named Philemon, 
doing just that. He is exemplifying this beautiful picture of restoration, this beautiful picture of the very gospel that Paul proclaims. Paul is living it out in real life. Philemon had a broken relationship with his former slave, his indentured servant, his employee. The relationship had been shattered as Onesimus, this this man had fled his responsibilities and his obligations. He had stolen likely some money to fund his fleeing from Philemon. But Onesimus had run into the Apostle Paul, perhaps unexpectedly, and God did a radical work in changing his life. Now Paul is trying to bridge the gap in this relationship. He's wanting, yes, forgiveness. He's wanting, yes, reconciliation. But here's what he ultimately wants, and here's where all our relationships ought to be aiming to go. It is full and total restoration. That's what Paul aims at here. And all of this restoration, just like in a car or in any other endeavor, requires a deep risk. It requires the willingness to repair and ultimately requires the goal of seeking it to reflect what it once was, perhaps better than it's ever been. Paul does this so perfectly in this little postcard letter. And I want us to watch and learn from Paul this morning. And what we're going to do is just pick up and read from verse 17 all the way through the end and we're going to dive in together. Look at what Paul says to Philemon. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the very same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. As we look at Paul, as we watch and learn from Paul, I think what we see is some steps to restoration that we can embrace and hopefully embody in our relationships. I hope you you can see Paul at work here, and I hope that you can say, I I should strive to be like that. So Paul is going to become our model in this passage, and you'll see how he uniquely throws himself in the middle of this relationship. It helps us see how we ought to both respond and maybe how God would seek to use us in relationships. The first thing we see is this, we need to risk like Paul, but that requires us to see the value. We need to risk like Paul when it comes to relationships and understanding the value of relationships. Paul Tripp has written a book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. I think that's a really, I've always gravitated toward that title because I think it's absolutely true. I think for sure we all understand that relationships can get messy in a hurry. Every one of us has been deeply hurt in relationships. Every one of us knows that we have hurt others in relationships. But I think what's so important is to see that even though the relationships can be messy, they are so worth making a mess. You see, the reality is, is we need relationships. It's the reason why we were created, in one sense, in the image of God. We are required to have relationships. Now, it's important to say this. Listen, relationships are a choice. Many people choose not to have them. 
Many people choose to isolate themselves from any kind of deep and intimate relationship, and it is to their detriment. So while it's a choice, it's helpful to see that the scriptures remind us that relationships are utterly necessary. They're necessary for our health. They're necessary for our growth. They're necessary for us to thrive in a world, yes, that is broken by sin, but in a world that is created by God. Now, Paul knows how hard relationships can be. He does. He's not writing this from an ivory tower in this place where he's just simply dealing theologically with issues. He's dealing with this from a very personal experiential reality in his own life. He knows what relationships are all about. Paul has been hurt by relationships prior to writing this letter. And by the way, we know from scripture, he's going to be deeply hurt by relationships after writing this letter. Paul understands that relationships are messy and challenging and painful and difficult, but one of the things we learn from Paul here is that they are absolutely valuable. They are a mess worth making. They are something worth pursuing, regardless of the hurt that we may experience and the risk that we may be taking upon ourselves. Here's one of the ways we see that. Aside from the fact that this whole letter is written from the vantage point of restoring a relationship, Paul identifies a list of friendships at the very end of this letter. And I want to start here just to reestablish the importance of relationships. You'll notice in the final greeting, he lists what he calls, excuse me, his fellow workers. These are friends of Paul's. They're ministry partners. They're people he's been doing life and ministry with. He has built deep and lasting relationships with these men. Paul is an advocate just in his greeting and in his final greeting here for relationships. But there's some things that we can learn from these relationships. These five men are mentioned here. We know this as well, that this letter is delivered by a friend named Tychicus. All of these men are also mentioned in the book of Colossians at the very end in chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Now, one of the reasons, just to be clear, that Paul adds them in here and he greets Philemon. Remember, Philemon is a church leader. He knows these men. There's relationships here. But here's what you have to see happening as well. Part of the reason Paul mentions these men is because all these men play a prominent role in the life of the church. And here's what they're intended to do. They're intended to heighten the expectation for Philemon. Do you you see this? In other words, Paul says, by the way, um, all of these men, these guys in ministry just like you, friends of yours, men who love the Lord like you, they know about your situation. They send their greetings, by the way, which means this, they're hoping to see the same thing I'm hoping to see. There's a heightened expectation. There's a heightened, and this is good, a heightened pressure put on Philemon to respond appropriately because there is a heightened sense of accountability built in with this relational dynamic presented by Paul. Now, Tychicus is not mentioned here because he's delivering the letter. He'll give his own greetings, and his presence will, again, heighten the bar for Philemon to respond in a biblical and in a a right way. But as we look at these men just really quickly, here's what I want you to see. I want to describe some of these men to you and what they're like, but here's what we see. Here's something we can learn from this, okay? In in each of these men, there's either going to be something to be, okay? Something you can strive to be. You want to be like them in some way, or something to avoid, You'll see that very clearly in at least one of these men. Or in this, listen, there's something to seek. If, if you are this person, that's great, but here's what we all need people like this in our lives. So this could be something you may want to be praying about, something you may be wanting to, to fight for and forge in some of your relationships. So let's just kind of quickly break these men down. And I've kind of given them a name that I think describes a little bit about um, um, how they're described for us in the scriptures. So here's, here's the first one, empathetic Epaphras. 
Now notice how he's described here, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Now here's exactly um, what Paul is trying to get at here. Epaphras was um, a former church planter. He's referred to in the book of Colossians. He likely is responsible for planting the church in that city, in Colossae. Paul never went there. He was likely saved under the very ministry and preaching of the Apostle Paul, and he brought the gospel back to his hometown. And it's very possible, and in fact, it's probable that he pastored um, the church that met in Philemon's home, even here. Many scholars believe that. Now, it's not entirely certain that he is a physical prisoner um, for the Lord. It's very possible that he too has been in prison for Jesus. Maybe he is even at the time of Paul writing this. There's, there's uncertainty. At the very least, Paul is creating this tight bond between them. He's relating to Epaphras in a very unique way. And here's what I think this is saying at the very least. Epaphras is a guy who can empathize with where the apostle Paul is. Paul is writing as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I had to describe Epaphras to you, you know, as the kind of friend he is, um, he'd be this kind of friend. He's the I get it friend. He's like, I get it. I, I, I get where you are. I get what you're going through. I've been there. And so, you know, you're talking to that kind of friend. They can instantly relate to you. There's an empathy there because they've lived through some of the same situations. You know, some of these kind of relationships are the most valuable you can have in your life with people who can empathize with you. Isn't that true? I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, nine years ago, we planted this church here. And many of you don't know this, but at the time we planted with, um, I, I was, went through a training process where a, a group of, of men planted around the very, very same time. And I had lived with these men and, and our, our families lived in the same kind of area for about eight months getting some training. And when we left our training to go to our various cities across Canada and the United States, we had, we had forged such unique friendships and unique bond, and we had so much in common. We were going to plant churches. Um, one of the things we decided to do when we left there was have a weekly um, conference call, a video conference call. And, and I've been doing this for nine years, almost every single week, the same group of pastors. We get on a call together and we simply plan to do this. Listen, we wanted to talk about life and ministry. And I can just tell you, it's been one of the, the most liberating and joyful friendships and experiences of my life to be able to talk with people who are like, hey, you know, as you're explaining your life situation, you're like, I get it. I've been there. Let me pray for you. I, I know what you're experiencing. And, and we, let me help you think through this. It's been one of the greatest blessings in my own personal life, having relationships like this. And I think many of you have experienced this, and you're like, like moms, right? Isn't it true? Like you watch a bunch of moms get together, and all you see is a big empathy party. Isn't it true, right? <laughs> like, you know, you get one mom, and like, you would not believe what happened to me this week. My kid was eating Cheez-Its off of the bathroom floor at the zoo. And another mom's like, oh, that's nothing. I've been there and done that. <laughs> like, I get it. You know, one of the reasons why, why we do this, why we need this, these empathetic relationships, one, you know, one is therapeutic, right? To be able to talk to somebody who's been there, done that. But we need somebody to relate to. We need somebody to help us think through things. We need to know we're not the ones going crazy, at least not all the time. But every one of us needs that kind of relationship in our lives. We need people who can come alongside us and say, hey, I've been there. I, I've now, maybe not, I can't relate exactly, but I can relate in part to what you're going through because we all have similar human experiences. And by the way, we all need to be that for somebody else. One of the reasons God gives you unique experiences, and this is part of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, is so that you can come alongside. You know, you've experienced the comfort of God in moments of difficulty and trial, and now God allows you to come alongside other people who are going through the same thing because believe me, people are going to go through the same things you've gone through. 
And God needs you to be that kind of friend for other people, to empathize with them and to be there with them, to come alongside them in life's most difficult times and say, listen, I've been there, I've experienced the grace of God through other people in my life and the comfort of the Spirit, and I just want to let you know you're not alone in this, and let me encourage you in the Lord, let me help you get through this. I think Epaphras was that for Paul in many ways. He's a fellow prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And next, notice who he mentions. He mentions Mark. Now, I've called Mark maturing Mark. Maturing Mark. Mark is John Mark. That's his name in Scripture, his official name. He is the cousin of Barnabas, if you're familiar with the book of Acts. Barnabas, the encourager. Barnabas, uh, instrumental in some of the first missionary journeys of the church. He is the author of the gospel that bears his name. But at one point, maybe what you don't know about Mark is at one point he had this massive falling out with the Apostle Paul. In, in Acts chapter 13, verse 13 in particular, we read about this, where John Mark was filled with fear. He didn't want to go on the missionary journey with Paul. And, and, and Paul actually was aggravated by this. He was angered by John Mark wanting to back out of the missionary journey. And there was this huge rift that developed in their relationship. But here what's so interesting is that now Mark is a faithful ministry partner. He's a changed man. And that's interesting because Paul had somewhere down the line reconciled with John Mark. And John Mark, you know, he's the bear with me kind of friend. He's the friend who's like, listen, I know I haven't arrived. I've made some mistakes in our relationship. I know I've hurt you, but, I, but I'm striving to grow. You know, that's, that's John Mark. I'm striving to become a more mature, godly person. I'm striving to be a better friend. And I know I've let you down in the past, but man, I, I desperately want to mend things with you. Don't give up on me. Have patience with me. And I just think this is, again, a powerful reminder that when Paul talks about restoration in this context, he's been there and he's done that. He's talking about it experientially, not just theologically. And now what's so fascinating and, and what we see at the end of Paul's life, not only is the relationship restored with John Mark, so, that, so much so that he is a partner in ministry, but by the end of Paul's life, John Mark becomes a deep and dear friend. Perhaps it is actually because of the way they were able to restore their relationship. But at the very end of 2 Timothy in chapter 4, you want to know what, what Paul says about John Mark? He says, bring, bring Mark to me. He's in prison. He knows his life is about to end. He says, bring Mark to me. He is useful to me. Mark has done a full 180 in their relationship, and he has become such a loyal companion and friend. You see, bearing with one another in love can produce some of the deepest friendships in life. And some of us are quick to write off people. Some of us are quick to write off people because of offenses towards us, and we're missing this great opportunity. We're missing taking a risk in, in restoring that relationship, real, not realizing and not giving any credence, credence to the fact that maybe God actually wants to deepen the friendship through this very rift that has been established We need to be the kind of individual like Mark who longs to be reconciled and restored, who says, bear with me, friend, be patient with me, be gracious. And we need to be the kind of individual that quickly seeks to restore relationships because we see the value in them. Who knows what God might be trying to do in this relationship? Notice next, he talks about this man named Aristarchus. I call him Adamant Aristarchus. And we know this from the book of Acts, a little bit about his character. He is a, a man who is adamant. He perseveres. I mean, he, he is uh, from Thessalonica. He's been with Paul a long time up to this point. So he's kind of one of those friends who's like this, I'm with you. 
You know those friends? Those friends who are like, they just, they're with you through thick and thin. All of the ups and downs in life, they're like, you're like, listen, man, you might not want to come with me. It's going to get really hard. He's like, good, the harder the better. That's who this guy is. He's been through hard times with Paul. He's been through riots in Ephesus with Paul. He was shipwrecked with Paul on the way to Rome. He is with him in his imprisonment. Church history tells us, tradition and church history tell us that he would be martyred in Rome under the persecutions of Nero. Like this is a man who is adamant. I am in this with you. I'm not going anywhere. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. I'm sticking by your side. He's the, the, the one who's saying, like, look, look, it's going to be hard. That's okay. We're going to be going through this together. We're soldiers and brothers in arms. Now, listen, let me urge you. This man has a lot to be admired, and we ought to all strive to be this kind of friend with one another. We all want this. Here's what I would say. We all want this friend, right? It's very different to be this kind of friend. It's very different to count the cost in relationships. And so I would encourage you, yes, want this friend, but let me encourage you more to be this friend. It's like David and Jonathan. Jonathan was just the kind of friend with David who's just like, I'm with you. I'm with you to the end. Next, look at, look at this other name, Demas. Some of you, for some of you, this is a familiar name. You've seen this before in the scriptures, and here's what we call him, deserting Demas. This is the guy who looks like a friend. He even acts like a friend. He's, he's Judas Iscariot. It's like he looks like he's in it. He looks like he's there. He looks like he's part of the team. I mean, really, when, when you look at him at, 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 on the surface, you can't tell any difference between him and any of the other guys. I mean, he seems faithful. He seems loyal. He seems true. But in the end, he shows himself to be a fraud. And we read about him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Paul tells us that Demas was in love with this present world, and so when times got hard, when things got difficult, when the persecution began to ramp up, when things got serious, this guy said, you know what, I could go this way, or I could have a life of comfort and ease. I mean, forget that, man, I'm going this direction. And he deserts Paul in the time he needs him most. I just want you to stop and think about how heartbreaking this is. And some of you know exactly how this feels. He's the I'm out friend, right? He, he's, the, he's the friend who says, hey man, yeah, I'll be there. And then he doesn't show up, right? You got this friend? And then you call him like, man, dude, what happened? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, man. Something better came up. You're like, you're an awesome friend. That's Demas. And this right here often prevents us from diving back into relationships. Some of you in here have had this kind of friend who's stabbed you in the back or stabbed you in the chest and walked away from the friendship and decided that you weren't worth it, the friendship wasn't worth it. And for you, you look at this and you're like, I, I just can't risk getting back into another relationship again. I've just been hurt so deeply. You can't trust again. And yet the Bible says you can't let this deter you risking relationships in the future. Why? Why is that? Here's one of the reasons. Because it reminds us that our hope is not in earthly relationships. Do you ever wonder why you've got to go through this, why we all have to go through this kind of betrayal in this life? Let me give you one, one really, really powerful reason. It is God's way of reminding you you have put too much stock in an earthly relationship and not enough stock in a heavenly relationship. Do you see that? 
You see, when, when you're betrayed and you can't risk again, God is showing you what you worship. He's showing you where you've placed your hope. He's showing you what you trust in more than him. If it unravels you and wrecks you to the point where you simply can't recover, God's putting his finger on an area of your heart and he's saying, listen, you love this and hope in this and trust this more than you hope in me. It's God's gracious way of showing. Listen, earthly relationships, whether it be a spouse or a child or a friend or a parent, they're not meant to take the place of your relationship with me. Only I can satisfy you. Only I can be your hope. Only I am worthy of your trust. Only I am worthy of your worship. Do you see that? If you don't believe me, just read through the Psalms, okay? David exemplifies this. I mean, he is stabbed in the back multiple times over by people close to him. And you wanna know what he keeps coming back to in the brokenness and the hurt, which is real, and which we, listen, there is a mourning that is right in this. But every time he gets back to this, but my hope is in you, O God. My trust is in you. You are a refuge for my soul. You see, you let this hurt push you back to the greater relationship, and it reminds you of where you can find ultimate satisfaction, of what all good earthly relationships are meant to point you towards in the first place. Lastly, look at who he talks about, Luke. Luke wrote the majority of the New Testament. If you add up uh, what Luke wrote, um, it trumps Paul by a long shot. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And here's how I've defined Luke, loyal Luke. Luke, we know this from Scripture, is a physician. He's a doctor. He is called uh, the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. Paul says he is loved. He is this great physician. It probably reminds us, listen, that Luke actually cared for Paul in some very practical ways. And I think Luke is this caring, gentle, loving friend. He picks you up when you are down. He nurses your wounds for you. He's a faithful and loyal friend to the end. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, at the very end of Paul's life, you know what Paul says? Luke alone is with me. Luke alone. This guy's never deserted Paul. He's always been faithful right to the very end. He's willing to stick it out with Paul to the very end. This is the I'll be there friend. Like, it doesn't matter, right? You, you have those friends. I hope you have those friends. If you don't, man, pray that God provides you with these friends. And that's the friend you're like, man, I'm unraveling. I've been hurt. My life is falling apart. I don't know what to do physically, spiritually, and mentally, emotionally. And they're just like, listen, I'll be there. Just tell, tell me what you need. Tell me where you are. I'll come right now. And when I get there, listen, I, I'm not going to come just to solve all your problems. I'm there. I'm going to bandage your wounds. I'm going to mourn with you. I'm going to be with you in the darkest valleys of your life. We all need friends like that, and we all need to be friends like that. It's one of the graces of God to get us through the, the more challenging moments of life. Listen, I, just, I hope you see the value of relationships, and you realize even now the risk that's worth taking in relationships. Paul is modeling for us the risk worth taking in relationships. They're so precious. They're so valuable. Yes, we are not immune to being hurt. It's a guarantee in relationships. Man, is it ever a gift of God's grace to have these kind of friends and to be these kind of friends to one another. We must risk to get all of these blessings from relationships. And when you risk in relationships, you will have opportunities, by the way, to restore relationships. As Paul already models, there's gonna be plenty of opportunities that come your way to restore broken relationships 
Paul models this again, so here's the second point this morning. Repair like Paul, seize the opportunity. Repair like Paul, seize the opportunity. And here we're going to go back to verse 17 through 22, and we're going to look at how Paul seeks to repair this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. And how Paul presents this as really a sweet opportunity to embrace, not something to resist and reject, which is so often the case in our flesh and our sinful nature. We resist this. We don't want to repair. We want revenge. We don't want to repair. Now, what's so fascinating about this entire account is not just the particular details about the situation between Philemon and Onesimus. It's, I think, the way that Paul injects himself into this very situation. This is amazing. Have you noticed this already? Like, Paul literally injects himself into this relationship. He puts himself in the middle where he is actually taking upon himself the role of a mediator. He's like, listen, I understand that there's a, there's a gap here that maybe is impossible to bridge unless somebody steps in the middle and helps both sides do this properly. This is a powerful lesson for us. This is a powerful lesson. He stands in the gap as a mediator. He sees the broken relationship. And here's what I want you to see in this. Listen, he sees his responsibility in helping bring restoration. Now, the reason this is important is because so often in relationships, if we're not involved, we're happy to stay that way. Isn't that true? We're like, hey man, I'll, I'll listen, I'll give you some thoughts, but I'm not willing to step in the gap. Now, I, I can tell you this from personal experience. I, I, I was called um, about a, a year ago, not quite a year ago now, um, by a friend, and I was asked to step in a mediating role in a very, very serious situation and I'll tell you this, my, my initial reaction was like, I don't really want to do that. In fact, I actually said, you know what? I don't think this is a good idea. And the situation was, was incredibly serious. And here's, here's what was going through my mind. If I do this, I'm going to risk losing a friend here. I'm going to risk hurting somebody. I'm going to risk a relationship. And right now, I'm not involved in this, not directly. And, and you know what? I'm happy to stand on the outside, let you two guys, you know, let you, you two groups hash this out. And I'm happy to step back. Now, God convicted me, by the way, because somebody brought to my attention the book of Philemon. Somebody said, do you think, do you think the book of Philemon has anything to say about what, what you've been asked to do? And instantly, I knew what they were talking about. <laughs> And instantly, and honestly, instantly, just the conviction from the Spirit of God was so clear in my life, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt I had to step in, regardless of the risk and regardless of the cost, potential cost to myself, to my relationships, I was being called upon by God to help mediate a situation, to help where two sides, there was this, you know, seemingly impossible chasm to cross. And I think this maybe is being required of us more often than we realize, we just don't have eyes to see this. I wonder how maybe some of you are, are being asked by God, even this morning, or maybe you know God's put this on your heart already, to intervene in a situation, not to take sides, but to help bridge a gap, to help restore a relationship. And how much of an opportunity God has given you, and he's calling you to seize it, maybe even after looking at this this morning, this will compel you to do just that. But what's so fascinating is how Paul does this. What's amazing in this section from 17 all the way through 22 is you see what Paul, Paul does. He doesn't, he, this is amazing. He makes this less about the circumstances and he actually makes, about, makes it more about himself. Did you catch this? 
Watch the language here. It's remarkable. You'll see this. Paul is putting himself in the middle, and he is essentially, guys, this situation, this relational problem is much bigger than both of you. In fact, it actually does involve me. (laughs) So often, we can't get uh, through to one another in relationships because we cannot see the big picture. And Paul helps to take their eyes off of each other as potential enemies, and he actually injects himself in the middle to help them see clearly. Look at what he does, and I'm just gonna break this down. Six statements Paul makes in six verses here, and in in each one, uh, I'll show you how Paul places himself in the middle. Here's essentially what Paul says in verse 17. He says, receive me, receive me. Look at what he says, this is amazing. He says, "Uh, so if you consider me your partner, receive him, speaking about Onesimus, as you would receive me. See, Paul does it. He makes it about himself. He's like, listen, forget about Onesimus for a minute. Now remember, Onesimus is standing right in front of him probably as he's reading this letter. And perhaps the the anger and the frustration is simmering in his heart already, right? He knows how he's been so deeply offended. Maybe he's been grievously wounded. But all of a sudden, Paul says, hey, imagine it wasn't Onesimus in front of you right now. Imagine it was me standing in front of you. And I want you to do this as if you were receiving me into your very presence. I want you to treat him the same way you would treat me if I was standing before you right now. And this idea of of receive me, it follows this great expression of love that Paul has already laid out for Philemon. He said, you know, he's expressed this deep uh, love for Philemon already. And he's like, listen, Philemon, I love you so much. You've been such a blessing to me as you've blessed the church. By the way, it's so helpful to remind um, others how we feel about them, isn't it? You say, why, why, is he, why is he doing this? It seems like he's kind of buttering him up or maybe manipulating him a little bit. Listen, the reality is he's, he's stirring Philemon's heart in a good way, and he's stirring it towards love. He's like, I love you, Philemon. Remember how much you love me. You know, get, get the hate and animosity and bitterness out of your heart and let's replace it with love. Remember how much you love me. Now listen, it's much easier to forgive when you're focused on loving than it is on revenge, isn't it? So Paul inserts himself into this picture to help stir the affections of Philemon's heart and he reminds him of this deep love between them, this deep partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, do it for me. Do it as if it were me. You see, part of what he's trying to do here is is take Philemon's eyes off of himself. This is a lesson for all of us. The reason we struggle to restore relationships is because we are so fixated on ourselves. We're so fixated on our hurt. We're so fixated on the wound. We're, We're just reliving the event that happened against, the offense against it over and over and over. And oftentimes what we need is a simple adjustment in perspective because you can never restore when you can't take your eyes off yourself. You can't, it's not possible. It's got to be bigger than you. And he is removing all excuses to not restore, and he is providing every opportunity to restore. He's reminding him that love trumps all things. Love is the key to receiving one another and restoring with one another. So seize the opportunity, Paul says. This is how you're going to be able to repair the relationship. Next, look at what he says. He says, charge me. Don't just receive me, charge me. Okay, I understand. You know what Paul's saying? I get there was a legitimate offense, and I'm not trying to minimize this. And that's helpful for us to know. Verse 18, he says, if he has wronged you at all, and he has, or he owes you anything, charge that to my account. Just put it on me. Now remember, Philemon has offended, excuse me, Onesimus has offended Philemon. 
he has likely stolen a large chunk of money or possessions from Philemon, and he's probably already spent it all. The reality is that Onesimus probably has no possibility of paying back all that he owes to Philemon. That's probably the general sense of, of what Paul is getting at here. Now, can I just, can I, can I say it like this? Restitution is an essential part of restoration. It is. Making restitution is essential to enjoying true restoration. It's important to repay. It's important to go through that process of giving back. You know, I think of Zacchaeus, who when he was confronted by Jesus, right, he recognized um, that he had done wrong. And what is his response? To not just restore what he owed, but he actually went above and beyond, didn't he? But I think that's a genuine mark of somebody who is truly repentant. And I think that's good for all of us to take note of. It's not wrong to expect and even demand restitution. Do you know that? Biblically speaking, it's not wrong. In fact, sometimes it's actually the right way to go to make sure that the person's repentance is genuine. But if I can say it like this, it's also not wrong to be gracious. And sometimes we are more focused on somebody making restitution and it's oftentimes a sign of our lack of forgiveness. You know, we just want them to pay. Well, what Paul demonstrates here and what he's essentially asking Philemon to do is to demonstrate an incredible degree of graciousness, to absorb the debt. Now, now what Paul does is, so, he's a master at this. this is a, you know what he does? He, he, he helps Philemon see how he should absorb the debt by saying this, I'll tell you what, I'll repay the debt. Now, I want you to, just, just for a moment, imagine the position this puts Philemon in for a second, okay? Hear what Paul's saying. Hey, just charge it to the old man who's in prison for Jesus Christ, okay? Put it on my tab. That's ridiculous. And Philemon knows it. Paul is willing to pay it. That's the awesome part. Paul, like, I'll pay this. I'll do whatever I can to pay this debt. But you know what he's really saying? He's like, listen, he's like, would you eat this debt? Would you be gracious? Would you absorb this? I mean, you can afford it. You, you know you can't. Like, you know the reality is, is Philemon is a very wealthy man. That's what this text hints at. Church is big enough where they're meeting in his house. It's very influential. He's all these, he has all these bond servants. I mean, he is a wealthy man. And Paul is saying, like, regardless of your wealth, though, would you just be willing to absorb this debt? There's this gentle pressure Paul puts upon him, right, with this idea of, you know, just put it on the prisoner's tab. But you know what he's really doing? He's providing some incredible perspective. Philemon, it's bad, sure, but it's not that bad. You could be in prison right now for Jesus. It's pretty bad. It's amazing how providing perspective can quickly help wake somebody up to their immaturity, isn't it? Isn't this just true? Like in, in our circumstances of life, in our situations, all of a sudden somebody, you know, you're, you're, you're griping about how bad your situation is. Have you ever done this? Like you're whining about something so trivial and then all of a sudden, the person you're wanting to shares something that is just devastating in their life, and you're like, oh, shoot. Um, yeah, my thing's not that bad. Perspective. Perspective reorients the heart, and what he is doing through this perspective is calling Philemon to seize the opportunity. We need to gain perspective. Things are generally not as bad as we think they are. The offenses generally aren't as bad towards us as we have imagined them to be. And the reality is it could be a whole lot worse. And so that little bit of perspective can quickly grip our hearts and pull us back to doing what is right. 
Notice what he says next in verse 19. He says essentially, owe me. Owe me. Like, repay me. You owe me, in other words, is what he's saying. Which, again, is just such another fascinating statement by Paul. He says this, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Like, I got no problem repaying this. But look at this. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. (laughs) Finally, you want to talk about who owes somebody something in this relationship? You owe me. What does that mean? Did, Did he borrow money from Paul? No. He got the greatest thing ever from Paul, the gospel. That's what Paul is getting at here. It's like, dude, I led you to Christ, right? You wouldn't be where you are. You wouldn't have an eternal reality awaiting you in the presence of God if it wasn't for how God used me in your life. I mean, let's be honest here. You owe me. You say, isn't that a little bit manipulative? I don't know. It's in the Bible. You tell me. I mean, honestly, this is actually a really legitimate way to leverage relationships. You ever do this? Right? I'll tell you this. Like, sometimes God allows you to be a mediator in a relationship, and one of the greatest kind of little things you can leverage is the relationship you have with the other individual. Hey, hey man, we've been through so much together. I've had your back through so much. Would you just do this for me? Man, look, honestly, you owe me. You owe me this. I'm willing to cash this in for somebody else. Owe me. You know what that also tells us? Sometimes the relationships that God is calling us to intervene in are the ones where we have the closest proximity, relationally speaking. Just think about this. Like sometimes we have no business getting involved in something we really don't. There's wisdom to this, okay? But sometimes, because of the, our proximity to the individuals and the proximity to the circumstances, require us to get involved because we have something that can be leveraged to gain the restoration. And that's something that's worth processing and thinking through as God allows you the opportunities to help restore relationships. Now, this also means this, that sometimes some of you right now, you may be in relationships that are not restored. It might be your marriage. It might be with family. It might be with somebody in the church. You say, well, who should I get involved? Who is there that maybe knows both parties? Who is there that has some leverage in your lives? Maybe somebody who's led you to the Lord. Maybe somebody who's been influential in both of your lives. That's not always available, but I would say if it is, this is giving us some really kind of great principles to operate in within relationships. We owe a great debt, let me say this, to those who lead us to Jesus Christ. Do you know that? I owe a great debt to a lot of people in my life. I owe a great debt to my parents who faithfully Um, shepherded and taught and disciplined and instructed me. I owe a great debt to pastors in the past who have shaped my life. I owe a great debt to seminary professors. I owe a great debt to friends in my life who have sharpened me and challenged me and and, um, refined me. I owe a great debt to the elders of this church who function as a team alongside me and help me grow. I owe a great debt to a lot of you in this room. There is a place where it's right to say you owe me. Now don't overuse that. But you see, all of us are debtors to grace in some way or another, aren't we? We have great leverage in the lives of those who have been changed by the grace of God and God has used us to do so. Seize the opportunity to do that. And look at what he says next, refresh me. Verse 20, refresh me. Refresh me. 
He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Paul's not afraid to say that. I love that. Refresh my heart in Christ. Again, you know what he's saying? He's saying, if you do this, don't, don't you understand how much of a blessing this is going to be to me? Don't you understand how much joy this is going to bring to my own heart to see you do what is right and pleasing, to see you do this for me even? And Paul is essentially saying, listen, you can be a great burden to me in this by, by dismissing all I'm saying, or you can be a great blessing to me in this. I prefer you be the blessing. You know, Paul, like, this is Paul, remember? He, he's, can, can you just imagine him writing this again? Finally, he's in prison. He's like, look, finally, there's been a lot of burdens in ministry. Like, like man, life in ministry has been hard. Please don't add to that. Please, I'm begging you. Just refresh my heart. I could really use some refreshment right now. Right? This would be a really sweet gift from you to me. It's so refreshing to the soul to see people respond well. And again, I just think in, in our relationships and in the context of maybe being able to mediate, to be able to say, listen, you're going to bless so many people by restoring this. You're going to be blessed. I'm going to be blessed. The people who know what's going on are going to be blessed. There's so much refreshing that can come from this. See the bigger picture in this. Don't get so myopic in your perspective, in your vision of what's going on, and miss the big picture of joy and refreshment that's at stake here. Seize this opportunity for refreshment's sake. And then he says in verse 21, obey me. And Paul has been saying everything he can to not mandate this obedience. He's an appealing, even though he could be commanding here. And he just so subtly makes this again an issue of obedience. He says, confident of your obedience. Verse 21, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. The obedience you see there is connected to what Paul says. He's like, I really want you to obey me. I've been telling you what's right. Now, now, is it about obeying Paul? No. Ultimately, it's about obeying God because all Paul is saying is exactly what God has already said. But he's saying, would you just, you know what I'm saying is right and I'm expecting your obedience and I love this. Paul knows this man so well. He's, he's expecting, he's confident that Philemon is going to be going above and beyond. Again, one of the surest signs of restoration is when we are willing to not just do the bare minimum, but to go to the extremes to demonstrate repentance, to make things right in our obedience to the extreme degree. I mean, so often we love to just kind of creep up to the line of the bare minimum just so we can say we did it. There, are you happy? Listen, genuine restoration so often often is demonstrated by a willingness to go way above and beyond to restore the relationship. Why? Because it's saying, this is not about me. It's not about what makes me comfortable. It's not about what is easiest for me. This is about what's best for you. This is about how I can demonstrate the greatest amount of love I can for you. That's what this is about. Listen, in your relationships, maybe if I can apply this to some of your marriages, listen, stop doing the bare minimum in the restoration process. Go above and beyond. A lot of wives are getting flowers this afternoon. This is so true. And for those of us, listen, the reason we go above and beyond in your own heart, if you're the one struggling here to restore, here's why you go above and beyond. Because you are training your heart to stop loving yourself more than you love the other person. You're training your heart to love them to the nth degree, which is what you ought to do in gospel relationships. And lastly, he says this in verse 22, expect me. Expect me. This is so fascinating. He says this at the same time. 
It's like, like, restore the relationship at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Paul's saying, listen, I'm in prison right now, but I'm trusting that God is going to use the power of your prayers to deliver me from here, and I'm coming to you soon. You say, why Why is Paul saying this? He just wants a visit? This is Paul heightening the accountability in the relationship. So what is accountability? It can be described a lot of ways. Let me just say it like this. It's to give an account to others for how you choose to live. It's built into the term, right? is to give an account to others for how you choose to live. Paul here is actually saying, um, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to find out if you've done what I've asked you to do. I'm going to stay in your house because we're that close, but the closeness of our relationship allows me to come alongside you and to say to you, did you do what is right and honoring to the Lord, or did you not? Now, some of us don't like this. Some of us don't like people kind of encroaching upon our lives in this way, but I want you to see, not just from here, this is, this is throughout the Bible, this is incredibly biblical, and it's something that every Christian needs, because if we're left to ourselves, most of the time, we won't always do what God calls us to do. Isn't that true? But with gracious, loving, relational accountability, it puts healthy pressure on us to do what is right before the Lord. This is the way accountability is supposed to work. It's like, I'm just, I'm I'm following up with you, Paul is saying, for the good of your soul. I'm following up with you because there's way more at stake than this. This isn't just about this relationship. This is about how it's going to impact the church. This is about the glory of Jesus Christ. This is about how unbelievers are going to begin to perceive what it means to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. There's so much more at stake in this, and so I'm going to follow up with you. Say, this is really that biblical? What do you think the church discipline process is? Matthew 18 is accountability. I'm coming to you to address sin. I'm going to come to you again in love and make sure you're doing what you're called to do. I'm coming to you, and if you don't do it, there's going to be some consequences because the glory and reputation of Jesus is at stake here. And that matters more than anything else. So he says, listen, expect me to come and find out how this whole thing unfolded. Listen, there's a a heightened expectation of Paul's arrival, and listen to what this does. It puts gentle pressure. There's only shame, listen, that comes in accountability if there is disobedience, okay? But where there is obedience, there is increased excitement and joy. Listen, Paul's ideal is that he comes and Philemon goes, Paul, Paul, I've been waiting for you to get here. Guess what, man? The relationship has been fully restored. It's better than ever. I did everything you asked me to do and more. And God is blessing in incredible ways. You see, true accountability is supposed to lead to obedience, which is supposed to lead to greater joy and excitement in the Christian life. And again, our fleshly instinct is to stay out of these things, to not get involved in this kind of restoration process. I get that, and sometimes that is absolutely good advice, but sometimes we are being called to get in the middle, and we know that because Paul was not afraid to get in the middle. This also reminds us that sometimes we need others to get in the middle of our relationships. There's no shame in that. Can I just, some of you are in really difficult situations. Listen, I have, I have watched people walk into my office who have been struggling for years in marriage relationships or in family relationships for years, afraid to get anybody else involved, and so have been suffering in relational conflict and discord because they were embarrassed, because they were ashamed, because they thought they could figure it out on their own. Can I just encourage you? Listen, this is normal life, okay? 
Very often, we can't figure it out on our own, and it's quite reasonable and acceptable and a gift of God's grace to be able to go to others in the Lord and say, we need some help here. And some of you are short-circuiting some serious growth in your life because you're afraid to do this. And I just want to free you up from that. Some of you need this, and it's a good thing, and you ought to be seeking this so that, listen, you don't live the next five years of your life with a relationship that continues to implode and spiral out of control and instead enjoy a relationship that begins to go on the increase for the glory of God and the joy of your heart. Lastly, we see through all of this the call and the example of Paul to reflect, reflect. So we need to reflect like Paul and to show the gospel. Here again, Paul shows us by example what a heart that's ready to restore looks like. And again, I'm just going to draw this out of verse 25. Just look at this. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I just want you to notice this, that this entire letter has two bookends to it. Paul begins in verse 3, and he says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends this book on this note of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be with our spirit. And, and this isn't, again, just some kind of a perfunctory statement that Paul slaps on the end of a book to say, you know what, I'm signing off now. This is not what this is. These bookends really describe the bookends of Paul's life. It's grace. It's always been grace. Grace at the beginning. It's by the grace of God that I'm saved. It's by the grace of God I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's by the grace of God I'm a part of the church of Jesus Christ. It's by the grace of God that I get to do anything for the sake of Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, I am going to finish well. By the grace of God, I'm going to enter into his presence for all of eternity. All of this is grace. Listen, so if his life is bookended by grace, here's what you have to see. Every part of his life is infected by grace. I mean, the gospel is just so pervasive in Paul's thinking. And you just read through his letters. They are just all saturated in the gospel of Jesus. He can't get away from grace. He can't get away from the gospel. It influences everything he does in his life, and it is influencing how he is viewing this relationship here. I mean, why did Paul seek to repair and restore this relationship the way he did? Because he gets grace. Because he gets the gospel. Because he knows that this situation is an opportunity to put the gospel of God's grace on full, glorious display. Paul is so obsessed with the grace of the Lord Jesus that he has instinctively just embodied it. It's a part of who he is. So how do I constantly remember grace? By constantly living in it. That's how. Paul is an old man now. That's what he just says here. He's now an old man and he's in prison. You know, it's funny. I'm watching old people in love, right? I got to qualify that. There's lots of old people not in love. You ever watch old people in love, you know, they're, you know, you know, they're like 90 years old and they're still walking around holding hands, you know, sitting on a park bench together, sitting in a diner. I, I love seeing that. And, and one of the things that's fascinating, if you look at an old couple who've been together for years and years and they're actually in love, they start to actually look and, and talk like each other, right? right? They finish each other's words. Oh, sorry, that worked better in my mind. They finish each other's sentences. You know, they, they, they look alike, they talk alike, their mannerisms are so alike, and you know, the reality is they've been around each other so long that they've rubbed off on each other. They spent so much time together that they've rubbed off on each other. And you know, the truth is that the longer that we're in Christ, the longer and the closer that we walk with Christ, 
the more we will begin to look and act and sound like Christ. The more we begin to speak like Christ. You know, one of the greatest examples of this, aside from Paul right here, is John. You know, John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know that? That's how he describes himself in the Gospel of John. But do you ever read John's writings, like his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, even in the Gospel of John? If you read Jesus' writings, there's no other greater parallel to the language that Jesus uses. Did you know that? In other words, John had such an intimate relationship with Jesus, he so respected him and loved him, that he just instinctively began to sound like him. And we see this on an earthly level all the time. Paul here is so saturated with Christ that he is embodying the gospel and he sounds like Jesus and he is in one sense, this is fascinating, he, if you haven't caught this already, is actually acting like Jesus in this relationship. Did you catch that? You see, when Paul is, is appealing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, he's instinctively behaving like Jesus. It's amazing, I'll put these back on the screen just so you can see them again. When you read Paul saying all of these things, isn't it amazing how you can also read Jesus saying these exact same things to you and to me in all our relationships? I don't think this is a coincidence. This is Paul so saturated with the gospel, with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, literally living out Jesus in this moment. And this so powerfully displays and reflects the beauty of the gospel because we know what the word of God says, that there ultimately is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, isn't there? There is one who steps in the gap in every one of our relationships, most predominantly in all of our relationships between us and God. And you can just hear, listen, as Jesus steps in the gap for you in your relationship between you and God, can you just hear Jesus standing alongside you as you stand before God, listen, guilty of sin, rightly charged with sin, justified punishment should be coming your way. Here is Jesus speaking on your behalf to God. God, would you just receive me? I mean, look at them, but look at them as if you're looking at me. This is what the gospel says. Don't, don't see them in all of their sins. See me in all of my beauty and all of my righteousness. See them covered in me. Jesus would stand before God and say, charge me, right? Charge it to my account. All of their wrongs, all of their sin, all of their wrongdoing. Listen, instead of mediating or meeting out your, your punishment and your wrath upon them, pour it out on me. And that's what Jesus does as he hangs on the cross. So repay me. Charge it to me. Credit it to my account. Let it be my offense. Let me pay it in full. And then he says this to us, doesn't he? He turns to us in the relationship. He says, now listen, just owe me. Don't pay me back. You can't fully pay me. But owe me. Give me your life. Surrender your life to me. Look what I've given to you. You are a debtor to my grace. Come and, and follow me. My will. My way. Lay down your, your rights. Lay down your revenge. Lay down your hurts. Lay down your wounds. Lay down your life. Lay it all down and come and, and follow me. And here's what he says to us. Just refresh me. Make this about what is pleasing to me. Let your life as a sacrifice unto me be a pleasing aroma to me. Let it bring joy to me. Let that be your, your all-consuming concern, right? For you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify me with your body. 
And how do you do that? You hear Jesus saying, just obey me. Obey me. Pick up your cross. You are a slave of Christ. You are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You have been bought with a price, and now obey me. All of your life is an act of obedience unto me. And he says to every one of us, listen, in the same way, expect me. I'm, I'm, I'm with you already. And that should be enough accountability, by the way. He is with you. If you're in Christ today, he is with you. He lives within you. He sees everything you're doing. You are accountable to him. But you know one day he is returning. He is coming on the clouds. And he is coming for you and for me. And there is a heightened sense of accountability that comes with that. One day, Jesus, expect me. I will draw all my people to come and stand before me. And you will give an account for your life. Here's the question, right? Will you be found doing everything that Jesus asked you to do? Will you hear the sound of his voice saying, well done, good and faithful servant? You see, the next time you get the opportunity to be part of a restoration process, whether you're in the middle or whether you're one of the parties involved needing restoration, here's my plea to you from the word of God. Don't avoid it. Don't despise it. Don't reject it. Embrace it. Whatever part you get to play is an opportunity to reflect Jesus and to show the gospel. But to show the gospel, you must first believe the gospel. Every one of us is very much like a broken down old car needing to be restored. And God took the risk, seeing the value that he inherently gave to us as those made in his image and likeness. God did the repairs, seizing the opportunity through his grace and by the power of his cross, taking what was broken and beginning to make all things new, he started with us. God is now being reflected in us, those who are new creations in Christ Jesus, transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the one we love and adore, the one we behold. We begin to show forth the beauty and the power of the gospel, not just in our lives, but in our relationships. He calls us now to be a people, a community, a church that displays this same heart of restoration to one another and to the world. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with our spirit. Amen. Father, we pray that you would do this in us. God, we see that restoration is not just about us. It's so much bigger than that. It's not just about our relationships. Really, God, it's an opportunity to reflect our relationship with you. And God, I pray for those in here who have broken relationships, maybe even relationships in this room that are broken. They're not where they ought to be. They're not where they should be. God, may you bring a deep conviction by the power of your spirit. But God, would you bring also a deep hope in knowing, God, that the gospel is greater than all of the hurt, than all of the woundedness, than all of the brokenness. Your power, your grace can restore what is broken. You've proven that time and time again. And Father, we pray that you would increase in us a joy in knowing how good you are to restore a broken relationships. God, you take what is broken and you make it beautiful. God, may our broken relationship with you continue to be restored until the day where it will reflect the blazing glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in all of its fullness. And may it be our joy to declare, hallelujah, what a savior. You have rescued us. You have redeemed us. You and you alone have done what you can do. You have restored us. Receive all the glory and all the praise we pray in the name of Jesus. 
Amen.